Welcome to episode 6 of The Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we will be discussing mass murders. What are the characteristics of this type of murder? What motivates them? We will distinguish between the different types of mass murder and explore case studies associated with them. To begin, I want to start by distinguishing mass murder from serial murder, something we will discuss starting next week. They differ mainly in timing. Mass murder is a single event in time where multiple acts of murder occur. Most people set the minimum victim count for mass murder at three for classification purposes. The main difference between mass murder and serial murder is there's no cooling off period between killings during mass murder. There are a number of different types of mass murders, all with different motivations, stages of planning, and personal characteristics. The first we'll talk about today is the disciple killer. The disciple killer is an interesting one, quite different from the rest. This is someone who kills at the behest of charismatic or cult leaders. The motivation here is not simply personal or internal to the killer. They are following the orders of their leader in an effort to achieve acceptance by this leader. The relationships between leader and disciple can be incredibly toxic and reminiscent of brainwashing. The victims are usually strangers, randomly selected by the leader, who have some type of symbolic meaning related to the cult. One of the most infamous examples of disciple killers is tied to Charles Manson and his Manson family cult. Though there's no evidence he ever directly murdered anyone or ordered his cult members to murder anyone, the court found that Manson's behavior constituted a conviction of first-degree murder because of his espoused ideologies. He believed there would be a race war he called Helter Skelter that would be triggered by the murder of people he viewed as quote-unquote pigs. The next type of mass murder is the family annihilator. This is someone who kills an entire family at one time. It doesn't necessarily have to be that person's family, but that is often the case. Family annihilators are typically men with a history of depression and alcohol abuse. Motivation in this case is often suicide, stemming from depression, financial struggles, or personal failure. These people feel hopeless and helpless and often have the mentality of saving their family from shame or embarrassment of their failures and consequent suicide, though not all family annihilators die by suicide. Notably, there are many women who fall under this category of mass murderers. Two of these women are Andrea Yates and Benita Jacks. No doubt most people from the United States have heard of Andrea Yates. She drowned her five children in the bathtub after her husband left for work. Yates had suffered from depression, specifically postpartum depression, and was being treated with the antipsychotic drug Haldol after being diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. She made multiple suicide attempts after the birth of her fourth child. Her doctor warned Yates and her husband against having more children because it contributed to her psychotic depression. However, she had a fifth child the next year and continued to decompensate, especially after the death of her father. Her doctor instructed 24-hour supervision of Yates with the children, but despite this, her husband left her alone 
with the children for about an hour before her mother was scheduled to arrive one day. Within that hour, Yeats drowned all five of her children, one by one. She then called the police herself, and then called her husband to come home. She confessed to drowning her children, but maintained that she was not in her right mind. During her first trial, the jury rejected the insanity defense and found her guilty, though they did not accept the death penalty upon sentencing. Unfortunately, the first verdict was reversed when evidence emerged that prosecution witness and psychiatrist presented false testimony that could have influenced the jury. The second trial jury bought her insanity defense and found her not guilty by reason of insanity. Yates was then committed to a state hospital, followed by a transfer to a low-security mental facility. The original jury believed she was cognizant of her actions and understood them to be wrong, whereas the second jury did not. The other example of a female family annihilator is Benita Jacks. The Benita Jacks case wasn't as sensationalized as the Andrea Yates case, but it is just as horrific. There are some similarities in this case in terms of questions of mental competence and grounds for an insanity defense. But in this case, Jax was convicted of murder and child cruelty of her four daughters. Jax actually waived the right to a jury trial, and she pled not guilty, but rejected an insanity defense. In Washington, D.C., in January of 2008, federal marshals were carrying out an eviction at the home of Benita Jax. The marshal found the bodies of the three young girls lined up according to age in one of the bedrooms. In the other bedroom, her eldest daughter was found. Their estimated deaths occurred the previous summer, meaning Jax had lived in the home for at least six months with the decomposing bodies of her children. She claimed they had died in their sleep, and she told detectives they were possessed by demons, and when the demons died, they would return from the dead. She also claimed she never called for help because she didn't trust the police. The medical examiners who examined the bodies couldn't definitively determine the causes of death because of the advanced state of decomposition. They believed the three younger girls were most likely strangled and the eldest daughter may have been stabbed, but it wasn't clear whether this was the discrete cause of death. The third type of mass murder we'll talk about today is called pseudo-commando. The pseudo-commando killer has an obsession with weapons. These killings are often meticulously planned, and the motivation behind this type of killing is often a personal duty to teach the world a lesson or exact revenge against anyone who has wronged them. A majority of these killings fall under the revenge motivation where victims are chosen either based on their past actions or personally wronging the killer, or based on what they represent to the killer. Pseudo-commando killers can perform their murders in a school setting, but there are certain distinctions between these killers and school shooters. They often stockpile weapons and ammunition before the attack and either kill themselves or let themselves be killed by law enforcement. The Columbine Massacre is an example of pseudo-commando killings where students Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold killed 12 fellow students and a teacher in a commando-style attack 
at their high school in Colorado in 1999. Nine months prior to the massacre, Harris and Claybold both began stockpiling firearms and ammunition along with explosives. Now, along with the shooting, they had also planned to bomb the school, but thankfully, the bomb failed to detonate. They placed this bomb in the cafeteria, and had it gone off, would have had the power to kill or seriously injure all 488 students in the cafeteria at that time. Now, school shootings are a bit different than pseudo-commando killings. They have a pretty distinct reaction to campus life and overall the school experience. So school shooters are typically younger white men in their teens or early 20s who experience frequent bullying in school. The killers react to this bullying, social isolation, and rejection by lashing out as the aggressor to gain control over their status. One example of a school shooter is Elliot Roger, who was responsible for killing six people and injuring 14 others near the campus of University of California, Santa Barbara, in May of 2014. Roger started his attack by stabbing three men in his own apartment before beginning his shooting spree. Those men included his roommate and two of his roommate's friends. He then uploaded a YouTube video detailing his plan for retribution, where he explained his need to punish women for rejecting him and sexually active men whom he envied. He also emailed a copy of his manifesto to some acquaintances, his therapist, and family members, which detailed his life and plan for retribution over frustrations from not having a girlfriend, his hatred of women, and his contempt for couples. After stabbing the three men in his apartment, Roger drove to a sorority house on campus and shot three women outside after no one let him in. Two of those women subsequently died. He then shot into a nearby deli, killing a male student. As he fled the deli, he drove down the wrong side of the road and hit a couple walking across the street and a bicyclist with his car. He exchanged fire with a police officer at that point and struck two pedestrians in the crossfire. He then shot and wounded three people and hit a skateboarder and two bicyclists with his car, followed by hitting another skateboarder and shooting two male pedestrians. At that point, more police responded, and he exchanged fire with them before fleeing, hitting another bicyclist and crashing his car. He died by suicide in his crashed car. All six murder victims were students at UCSB. They were Weihan Wang, Cheng Yuang Hong, and George Chen. Those were the stabbing victims in Roger's apartment. Catherine Cooper, Veronica Weiss, and Christopher Michaels Martinez were all gunshot victims, the two sorority members and the deli customer. I had a hard time deciding whether I wanted to talk about the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, at the time, I was living about an hour away from Sandy Hook School on December 14th, 2012. So it hits pretty close to home. Um, there are many aspects of that case that contribute to a narrative in the media related to mental illness and violence that I don't agree with. 
so I don't want to perpetuate that false narrative any further. There is no clear motive for the shooting, though there are many theories if you would like to investigate them on your own time. What I do want to do is honor those victims, the 26 people including 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7, and 6 staff members. And before going into the school, Adam Lanza also killed his mother, Nancy, in their home. The victims include Rachel Diavino, the school's behavioral therapist, Don Hawksprung, the school principal, Anne-Marie Murphy, the special education teacher, Mary Sherlock, the school psychologist, Lauren Russo and Victoria Lee Soto, who are both teachers at the school, and all of the students. Charlotte Bacon, Daniel Barden, Olivia Engel, Josephine Gay, Dylan Hockley, Madeline Sue, Catherine Hubbard, Chase Kowalski, Jesse Lewis, Anna Marquez Green, James Mattioli, Grace McDonnell, Emily Parker, Jack Pinto, Noah Posner, Caroline Praviti, Jessica Rakos, Aviel Richman, Benjamin Wheeler, and Allison Wyatt. The last type of mass murder I'd like to talk about today are set-and-run killers. Set-and-run killers are typically motivated by revenge. These killers do not want to be caught and set up their killings to provide themselves an escape before the act even occurs. These killers don't directly observe the consequences of their actions, and many believe the motivation behind this type of mass murder is to gain attention or notoriety, but also remain anonymous. Methods of set-and-run killings include planting bombs, tampering with food products or medicine, and sending biological toxins through the mail. The Chicago Tylenol murders are a prototypical example of set-and-run killings. They consisted of a series of poisoning deaths that resulted from drug tampering in Chicago in 1982. Tylenol capsules had been laced with potassium cyanide, resulting in seven people dying as a result. This case remains unsolved today, and no suspects were ever formally announced or charged with the murders. Because of this, no motives were ever identified. However, this incident led to reform in terms of the way over-the-counter medications are packaged, along with federal anti-tampering laws. Thank you so much for listening to episode 6. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other platforms. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod, and please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is the Forensic Files Pod at gmail.com. I love all the questions you have sent me so far, so please keep them coming. I would also very much appreciate 
if you could leave me a review so more amazing people like you can find the podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. You can find files related to sources, suggested readings, and scripts of every episode in the shared Google Doc folder, which is linked in the episode notes. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.